We've come to part nine of our series of come, buy, drink and eat with God or from God and with God. And we've got to what used to be uh, my least favourite book in Revelation. It's now become my most favourite book in Revelation. Has anyone else changed opinion of this, this, sorry, not book, letter? Letter. If we can have the PowerPoint, please, Karen, that would be brilliant. We've got to the end of this challenging letter that Jesus wrote to one of the churches. Um, And we get to this bit where Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And the whole letter is about Jesus disciplining and ministering to our thirsty souls. And my story, which I shared with the other pastors, has to do with God's disciplining and ministering to my thirsty soul. Now, when a person turns to Jesus to be born again, the Father sends his spirit of his Son into their hearts, also known as their innermost being. And it's from our spirit, our innermost being, that then the spirit of Jesus then begins to want to knock and minister to our thirsty souls. The Bible calls him the shepherd and the caretaker of our souls. And we've been studying the wonderfully transformational effects that Jesus can have when we let him in to our thirsty souls, into our anxious souls, into our hungry souls. So, cast your mind back to last week when we looked at this scripture. So, next one, please, Karen. Here we go. Speaking about Jesus, it said, For this reason, sorry, for those listening, um, it's Hebrews 2, verse 17 to 18. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And I asked you, when tempted or when sinning or having sinned, and we open the door of our soul to meet with Jesus in our temptation or in our sin or because we've sinned, do you think his attitude towards us is condemning or compassionate? Cynical? or sympathetic yeah and we concluded that when we open the soul the door of our soul to Jesus he is not only merciful and faithful and empathetic because he's experienced the very same things and helpful for us in our temptation or in our sin he is also the one who can forgive us he's not just empathetic and merciful he can also forgive us because he's the one who died for the very sins we commit. If you open the door to your Lord Jesus because you've sinned or you're sinning or because you're tempted and he was cynical or unmerciful, you wouldn't open the door again, would you? No. But do you really believe that if you're a serial offender, and all of us have been serial offenders 
at one time or another. Do you really believe that each time, if you're a serial offender, that you open the the door to Jesus, that he's still going to be merciful and sympathetic and helpful? Well, put it this way. If Jesus commanded us to do something, would you expect Jesus to live up to what he preached? What he commanded? Well, what did he command us to do concerning forgiveness? Yeah, 77 times 7 or 7 times. If we go to the next slide. In Luke 17, 3, Jesus said, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent. Jesus said, you must forgive them. Sounds like a command, doesn't it? You must forgive them. Seven times in one day. And in Matthew's Gospel, like Nick was saying, Jesus said 77 times. Or seven times 77. Basically, unlimited is what Jesus is saying. Does Jesus practice what he's preaching? Yeah, he's the epitome of what he preached. He's the embodiment of what he preached, doesn't he, Jesus? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it says in Hebrews. And we have no reason to doubt that he's just as faithful, just as merciful to forgive us on our first, our seventh, or our 77th time that we come to him, even in one day. Does that settle it for you now? That if, even if you're a serial offender, the moment you invite Jesus in to meet with you in the sin, after the sin, or being tempted, he is faithful and merciful and forgiving. Okay. I'm so grateful that no matter how foolish I have been, Jesus has always been merciful and faithful to rescue me when I've repented and cried out to him. When I've called out to him like Peter did, he was sinking, Jesus took his hand. And that's what Jesus does every time we call out to him, every time we open the door of our soul. Lord Jesus, I'm struggling, I've struggled, whatever it is. He grabs our hand and comes and meets with us. Okay. But moving on to where we paused our sermon last week. In the Garden of Gethsemane, having taken up our infirmities and carried our iniquities, our sins, Jesus said this, didn't he? Do you remember? Next slide, please, Karen. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Your sin, my sin, caused Jesus to experience death in his soul so that one day his suffering could cause you to experience eternal life in your soul. Death in Jesus' soul, eternal life. Eternal life is a relationship with the Father and Son in your soul. This living relationship welling up inside your soul. He suffered sorrow in his soul so that you could have joy, his joy in yours, welling up from the Holy Spirit. Not not to be worked up, but to be welled up. And now Jesus is knocking to administer this amazing eternal life 
in your soul, this relationship with the Father and with the Son. And having sweated drops of blood and shared about his own soul being overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, that same evening, moments later, Jesus was arrested. He was spat on. He was struck. He was beaten. He was whipped, crowned with thorns, and nailed to the cross and lifted up. And whilst on the cross, next slide please, in John 19, 28 to 30, Jesus said this, later knowing that everything had been now, had been now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Is there any significance to Jesus declaring that he was thirsty? Well, for starters, we read, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. What scripture? What scripture? Okay, well, possibly Psalm 69, 21. It says, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So maybe that was a prophetic scripture that Jesus was fulfilling when he said, I am thirsty. And probably, it's also in Psalm 22. Oh, back one. Thank you. No, back again. Back. Oh, is that my mistake? Have I, have I left out one? Okay. Well, in Psalm 22.15, oh, that was the next one, wasn't it? Psalm 22.15, next one. My mistake. All right, in Psalm 22, you, you turn in your Bibles if you've got it. If you're not, don't worry, I'll read it to you. But Psalm 22 is an amazing psalm, and there's so many similarities to Jesus' crucifixion in this psalm that it's well, it's well uh, accepted that this is a psalm concerning the prophecies about Jesus' crucifixion. And in Psalm 22, verse 15, it says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So maybe Jesus is saying I'm thirsty because of scriptures like this, which talks about his mouth being dry. And Psalm 22 is a safe bet, as I said, because it's got other things that talk about or refer to prophetically and accurately to Jesus' crucifixion. The next one, as we go up there in verse 18, says, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Isn't that amazing? That's exactly what the soldiers did. They divided up his clothes among them, but then there was one lovely kind of underwear, one-piece suit. They said, this is too good. We're going to have to cast lots to see who wins this one. Exactly what was prophesied in Psalm 22. And, as we see in the next one, probably what Psalm 22 is most famously known for when it comes to Jesus' crucifixion is because it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And that is because, what else did Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, from Psalm 22, for two reasons. Firstly, Jesus chose those words as some of his last words because he knew they were part of Psalm 22 and he wanted the world to know that what God had already said would happen in Psalm 22 was happening right there before their eyes. My God, my God, why forsaken me? And most of the Jews, knowing their scriptures very well from a young age, should have realised, ah, that's the beginning of Psalm 22. Even in the horrendous pains of death, Jesus so loved the world that he came to save that he was purposefully highlighting to all who heard and will hear later on in generations to come that he was the fulfilment of Psalm 22. What you're seeing right now is Psalm 22. The pain, the anguish, the suffering, the punishment, the scorn and the shame that is all covered in Psalm 22. This is happening right now. And also, in Psalm 22, later on, is the rescue, the redemption and the restoration. And with the psalm ending like this. It says, right at the end of the psalm, it says, Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, which is us, isn't it? He has done it. And right at the end, Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. Paid for. In full. Jesus was carefully and lovingly pointing the whole world. What you're seeing right now is Psalm 22 in action. All of it. The suffering and the restoration. And the second reason I think Jesus chose to quote the first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was because he was actually experiencing God-forsakenness. The son was indeed right there on the cross as he went dark for three hours. The son was experiencing separation from the father. True separation. The next slide, please, Karen. The Bible says of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't just carry our sin in a rucksack or on his shoulders. Jesus horrifically and amazingly became our sin. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. As a lamb, the sacrificial lamb, Jesus paid for our sin. But as the serpent, 
in John 3, it talks about as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so the Son of Man shall be lifted up. As Jesus paid for your sin as the Lamb of God, he actually became your sin as the serpent. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah 59.2 is not there, but it tells us that our iniquities separate us from God. The New Living Translation says, cut you off. Your sins cut you off from God. And so when Jesus became our sin, he was cut off from God. However the Trinity did it, he was experiencing it. Actually God forsaken this. So not only is Jesus pointing to Psalm 22 saying this is happening, Jesus is actually physically, spiritually and emotionally experiencing Psalm 22. All of it. In that moment he is experiencing the full effect of our sin. He is literally God forsaken, cut off from Abba and the Holy Spirit. No half measures. No worries. But the amazing thing is, however God did it, Jesus, who was sinless, spirit, soul, and body, right up until that point, became sin. And that's amazing, isn't it? But you, who have been sinless, or sorry, sinful, you who have been sinful, spirit, soul, and body, Somehow, God can make you righteous. Isn't that amazing? However he made Jesus, who had known no sin, to become sin, you, by his grace, can become righteous, even though you've known lots of sin. Yeah? And you've got to have faith in that. It takes faith, doesn't it? To accept the fact that even though you don't feel like it, you have become the righteousness of God. You've, had, you've got this amazing access now to this wonderful relationship. Even though you don't feel like it, that's the grace of God. And that needs faith. It takes faith, doesn't it? Wow. I became righteous the same way that Jesus became sin. Miraculously, by grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, if Jesus died a sinner, even though he wasn't one, I can live righteously with him, even if I don't feel like it, because of his grace. Okay. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come into the world and convict the world of three things. What was it? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay? Sin because they do not believe in me. Righteousness. We talk about Holy Spirit's conviction, don't we, as quite a negative thing sometimes. But actually, the Holy Spirit inside you convicts you that you are unrighteous when we don't believe it, when we don't feel like it. When we want to run far away from God because we're sinful, we, we keep messing up. He's saying, I want to convict you that you're righteous and you need to let the door open 
and meet with me in this, in this situation because you're righteous, you have a relationship with me. Okay. <clears throat> so, as Jesus hung on the cross, became sin for us, the Messiah, the Son of God, who for the last three years had been telling people to come to him, all who are thirsty, and they would never thirst again, what, is, what does he say on the cross? I am thirsty. Next slide, please, Karen. I am thirsty. The one who just said, come to me and you'll have a, your, your thirst will be quenched. He said, I am thirsty. Jesus was physically thirsty, no doubt, because of the physical exertion he'd been experiencing for the past hours and hours, having been arrested the evening before. But also, I think an incredible thirst of his soul he was experiencing for the first time in his 33 years on earth because his relationship with his father was no longer welling up into his soul. Because he was God forsaken, for the first time in 33 years, his soul was thirsty. Your sin caused Jesus' soul to be thirsty temporarily so that his sacrifice could cause your soul's thirst to be quenched eternally. Now, it, doesn't, it doesn't begin when you get to heaven, does it? We've been learning that as we spend time with him, as we open the door to our souls, as we commune with him, as we turn to him rather than Facebook and things that we've been discussing earlier, the Holy Spirit is able to well up in our soul this thirst-quenching relationship. Jesus back then drank the sourness of your vinegar so that you could now drink the sweetness of his living water. He did it for you. If. If. He did it for you if you are one of those mentioned three quarters of the way through the Psalm 22. Okay, it's verse 26. If you're one of these people, in verse 26, he did it for you. It says, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. Like King David who wrote this psalm, Psalm 22, Christians are those who come to the humble realisation that their soul hungers and thirsts for God. Their souls are poor without him, so they need to seek the Lord. And they open the door and let him in. Going back to our verse from the beginning. Jesus said, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 